Hello and welcome to the Ark & Co podcast. My name is Matthew Yassin, a director in the Structured Finance team. Hello, I'm Andrew Robinson. I'm CEO of Ark & Co. The team here at Ark & Co thought we'd put together a podcast to illustrate the thoughts and feelings that are going through the commercial finance world today. What we'd like to achieve is get to understand better some industry figureheads and get to know their journey that they've been on over the last 10 to 15 years. And secondly, we'd like to understand where the industry is going an education of the next generation in the financial services sector. And conclusively, we'd like you to rate, review and subscribe and tell all your colleagues as this will help us spread the message that we want and educate others. And most important of all, please enjoy listening to Andrew and I talk about the financial world. Well, I'm pleased to say the Ark & Co podcast is back and we're starting today with a bang. Mark Posniak is joining us from Octane Capital. Thank How you, Andrew. You thank you. Good. Thank you. Uh, lovely to be here. I'm really uh, proud to be invited. Yeah, it's good to see you in person. It is nice. It feels a little bit, felt a little bit surreal uh, hopping on the tube this morning. I, I haven't been on the tube a lot, I'm not going to lie. Uh, <laughs> I thought about hopping on the scooter and then thought, thought, thought differently. Oh, you should have gotten a scooter. I know, I should have, but my wife Get said it. no. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, look, Mark, um, so it's good to have you on. The whole point about the podcast really is to get to understand a bit about your background, how it all happened, and uh, where you're up to now. So let's start from the beginning. Was it Chevelle, or how did it start? What was the first foray into, into the UK market? Into the, uh, I mean, I came to the UK actually not for Chevelle. I came to the UK uh, as a cricketer. So I was a semi-professional cricketer playing uh, in Manchester of all places. But in Australia, where I was playing and living, um, I was in IT. And at the same time, I got a job working for BT New Ventures to help them uh, sell a computer as a service as opposed to as a piece of hardware, which was great fun. I used to spend four days a week in London, even though I was, I was living in Manchester, playing cricket on the weekend, coaching kids in, on a Thursday evening and a Friday afternoon. Uh, and that must yeah. have been a long time ago if you're selling one computer. <laughs> Times have changed. Times have changed. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was a long time ago. I think I first came to the UK in 2002, uh, spent six months here then up in Manchester, then went back to Australia, uh, back into IT and playing cricket there, and then came back in 2003 to rejoin BT New Ventures at the time and play cricket. And then... Uh, Somehow, a few, few years later, fell into financial services and working at Chevelle. Yeah, and how did it go? How was Chevelle? What was Chevelle it? was great fun, actually. Uh, so Chevelle originally actually was my uncle's business, um, uh, my late uncle, Norman Epstein, who was wonderful. And Chevelle is a breeding ground. If you look at the short-term lending space today, so many of us actually came and originated from Chevelle. You've got Gareth Lewis, who is at um, MT Finance. You've got Gavin Diamond, who heads up UTB. You've got Alan Margolis at Mar Mast Haven. Uh, the late Benson Hirsch, who was the head of the ASTL. He was our MD at the time. There were so many of us who had that solid grounding in short-term finance and specialist short-term finance at Chevelle. And we had a lovely time. You know. It was a big brand. What about a culture in there? As you said, it's, very, it's not very uh, often you get so many big names coming from one place. So the culture within Chevelle to get that grounding must have been fantastic. Oh, it was a wonderful place to work. It really was. Uh, I think the only better places have been when uh, when I was at Dragonfly and now obviously ultimately at Octane uh, has been my favourite. But I think the whole culture at Chevelle changed when Ellis Sure bought the business uh, from my uncle back in 
say 2006, 2007, um, and it really became more professional. We tried to grow it uh, to a much bigger pace. We had good people. We had great fun. It was, you know, you worked hard, you played hard. Um, but that, you know, that, the whole element of just enjoying going to work makes a huge difference. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Absolutely. Um, and then when you met Jonathan, so going on from there. So, so I, I was actually at Chevelle the first time I met Jonathan. Um, it was the height of the global financial crisis. Uh, it was not a very nice time to be, to be at a lender. We had spent over a million pounds on an electronic underwriting system. Uh, <laughs> Jonathan had just come back from South Africa after selling a, a bridging business and a mortgage brokerage in South Africa. Decided, I know what I'll do. I'll do the same thing here in the UK. And I remember meeting with him for a coffee in North London. And I remember saying to him, you're mad. You know, why would you start a lender right now? Your borrowers can't repay you. Banks won't lend to you. It's a nightmare out there. I said, the market is crashing at a rate of knots. Why would you do it? And he, you know, he said, I think there's good superior risk-adjusted returns. I've got good backing. Uh, I think it's the right time to do it. So actually, I was speaking to him about him leveraging our electronic underwriting system at the time. Um, anyway, we got on very well. He decided that he was going to do it anyway. I left Chevelle at the time and went and tried to actually sell the software that we we built um, to Jonathan to, to anybody <laughs> to anybody. Uh, it wasn't very. Yeah, I was going to say I wasn't very <laughs> successful at it. I got to tell you that much. I had ten months um, trying to flog a dead horse, at, and it wasn't a dead horse. It was a great piece of kit. The problem is your lenders and everybody that I was talking to were literally barely breathing. They were struggling like mad to stay alive, just trying to get through to the other side. And there I was knocking on the door saying, hi, would you like to buy some software to help you process your loans? <laughs> what what <laughs> loans? <Yeah>. We <laughs> so, haven't got anything. Exactly. No, it was difficult. So, focus on two things you uh, mentioned there. A thing that comes up quite often is risk-adjusted returns. And then he said Jonathan had good backing. Now, obviously, when you're going into a downturn or when it's easier to make a risk-adjusted return in certain ways like that with, uh, certainly design, with certain design products, but how do you get the backing? So, so Jonathan, I mean, listen, Jonathan had already sold a business in the space, albeit in South Africa. I think from the conversations that he always tells, he, he must have had 100 or 200 meetings looking for proper backing. He had some private money behind him. He had obviously some of his own money. But in order to grow it at scale and, and build it properly, you needed proper backing. And, you know, he came, came to the Octopus team uh, when he was building the Dragonfly business and, and they backed him. They saw something special in him, which I saw with the first time I ever met him as well, you know, this is an incredibly bright guy, very warm, very personable, very driven. You could just tell he was going to be successful, even from the first couple of meetings when I met him. Um, and, you know, those early days, it wasn't a huge tranche of money they gave him. I think the original tranche was 25 million. They said, go and lend this and see how you get on. You know, he did it in a couple of months. <laughs> they thought they saw that actually, you know what, this is, there's a real opportunity here. And at that point, Jonathan said, I'm going to do it myself because at the time he was lending through other lenders. So he was lending through, I think, the likes of Toyota, Link Lending. I think he did a little bit with Chevelle at the time. Um, but in order to do it as a proper business, he wanted to do it on our own paper with our own own brand. And so just, just to backtrack on that, was that Dragonfly? That was Dragonfly. The so Dragonfly was set up Correct. like that. That was how Dragonfly no. was set up. And, and in the back end of 2009, beginning of 2010, Dragonfly became its own lender um, with Jonathan, Matt Smith, who's our director of risk and credit, myself and uh, Elliot Himes, who was the, there was the four of us. And I remember sitting in a meeting room in uh, Angel Court by Moorgate and Jonathan and the four, of, uh, the four of us were sitting in a room and Jonathan said, I think we can build this business to be a hundred million pound business. 
And I looked at Matt next to me and I looked at Elliot and I was like, well, at Chevelle, we never got anywhere near 100 million. I think at Link Lending, I don't think they got that close either. That 100 million out loan at book. one time. Yeah, yeah, yeah loan so book. it's performing loans. Yeah, loan yeah. book. Um, not uh, lent, loan not book. Not lent, loan yeah. book, which meant lending a lot more than that. And I thought that's really aggressive. It's really punchy, but let's go along for the ride. And that was many, many billions. Yeah, well, <laughs> uh, I think the market opened up for you, right? Well, was, you know, yeah. it did. It, it really did. Um, when we launched uh, Dragonfly, which was originally Drawbridge, when we launched the business, it was just a wonderful time to lend. No one else was lending. And we had almost like a blank canvas in terms of we had a free run, free run at it for a, a good 12 months. At the same time, we had to make sure we were putting the right loans out to the right people and make sure we we're getting it back. Um, but what we tried to do is push that short-term specialist lending sector more mainstream. So it always had a slightly tarnished reputation. So a lot of people thought that bridging was lender of last resort. Um, but when we launched Dragonfly, we sort of tried to make it more professional, tried to make it more transparent uh, and try to make it a little bit more mainstream. So we launched our product range. We launched lovely, easy to follow products, but with easy to follow products comes easy to copy products. Yeah, well, it does, but there's a lot of reputation in there and trust built up. Um, so going on from that, you talked about, um, you know, you, you've gone from Drawbridge to Dragonfly and an octopus. Uh, and what was the opportunity really with Octopus? You know, obviously that could be a business enterprise value, et cetera, but it must be a big decision from taking something that you guys have set up, the four, the four amigos, if we call it that, and going into, uh, going into a bigger organisation. What did you see that as that kind of next step? So, I mean, when we look at the Dragonfly business in particular, um, that was Jonathan's business. So Matt, myself, Elliot, you know, we, we were just employees. It's not the same as now with Octane where we're partners and we're doing it ourselves with Jonathan. So it, you, Jonathan took the risk uh, far more than than we did in that first attempt. And, you know, we, we went along for the ride. We grew with him. Um, but... I can tell you working with the likes of Matt, who is our director of risk and credit now and was our head of risk and director of risk and credit when, when we left Octopus and, and Dragonfly, um, there's no better people that you'd want to do it with. But risk is the big word here, is not just risk in terms of starting the business, but risk in terms of how you assess loans and how you assess borrowers and how you look at properties and how you make sure you're going to get that money back. The differentiator is regardless of whose money it was, whether it was the fund, whether it was Jonathan's money, whether it was private investor money, we always treated it as if it is our own, regardless of whether we were an employee or whether we were a shareholder. Yeah, key, um, key and point. that is key point. And you look at one of the main reasons why some of these peer-to-peer -peer lenders fail and have failed is because they don't care. And they didn't care because it wasn't their money. All they cared about was upside, whereas we cared. We cared about every single penny. And we cared about our, our loss ratio and the fact that it was zero for six or seven years. Yes, I think we lost 100, 100 grand on, on, on a loan and I think we had one fraud. Um, but again, when you look at the loss ratio of 0, 0.000 something, um, it's something that you can really hold your head up high and, and be proud about. And that starts from Jonathan and Matt. Um, obviously, my role is slightly different. I'm more sales and marketing. Um, but I have risk at the heart of everything that I do and the heart of everything within my sales team is how do we make sure that when we look at a transaction, we try and make it work for the right reasons that, where we think it's going to come back. Uh, it's exactly the right way to be looking at it as a lender. And if you think about 
enterprise value or whatever, if you look after that key point performance, everything else follows with it. Correct. So when, you, when you're then moving on to someone like Octopus, which was, or is, an energy company. Exactly. So, you know, what was their target? Why, how did that happen, you know, about, or how did it materialise going into the real estate market? And then obviously your performance is second to none. Uh, with regards to loss ratios, et cetera. What did they see and what was the vision with regards to your, your team and their team? Where did they want to take it to? I think that they they could always see how well the, the book was performing. They could see how their business was growing, but it was Jonathan's business. It wasn't their business. And in order for them to ramp up their real estate division, I think they had to bring it in-house, which is why Jonathan sold up and exited the business. In, so he sold, I think, in 2013, exited in 2015 after an earnout. Um, and at that point, myself and Matt took over um, and the day-to-day running of the business. But from their point of view, it is about scale, it's about shifting up, um, albeit, you know, when you look at what's happened over the past 18 months there, it hasn't gone as smoothly as I think they would have hoped. But their focus is in energy now. You know, when you look at their business and everything around their business, it to me, it feels like it's an energy business more than anything else. Yes, they got their inheritance tax and their, their investment side of the business as well. But um, when you think of Octopus and you tell, talk to anybody in the street about Octopus, it's an energy business. I might have to phone them up and ask to comment on that. <laughs> yeah. you, you, you can do. You can do. I mean, we, we, uh, I've still got a lot of friends at Octopus and, yeah. and it, it was a wonderful place. It's, um, a, it's a good business. Yeah, it, it really is. It really is. But I mean, I, I, my focus and my energy and my attention is all on Octane now. And then how did you see, so there was a comment you said earlier about uh, the professionalism of the bridging market. You know, it wasn't the last uh, uh, um, chance or last, uh, you know, uh, lending, last resort of lending, basically. And what I've seen is that I've been, I can go, well, I set it up in 2008, but I've seen the professionalism of bridging is massive. It's seen as an actual product to uh, do something with, work with, rather than a lending of last resort. So... How, my question is, how did that happen? How do you change people's perception of what bridging is? I think a lot of it was in the transparency. A lot of it was communicating all the fees. A lot of it was actually just standing up and being counted. When the, when the chips are down, how do you treat borrowers? Um, so there's a lot of us that will always put the borrowers at the heart of our proposition, whether we're regulated or not. Um, and the, the professionalism and transparency that came when we started Dragonfly was you can see where the products are, you can see where the fees are, you can see where the extension fees are, you can see what the default interest is, there's nothing hidden, there's nothing, you know, we didn't double our interest rate when things went wrong, we didn't charge 5% when the loan went beyond term. Doing small things like that make a huge difference to bringing this market and making it more reputable. The problem you have is with the competition as it is and how the market has grown and scaled so quickly and how much liquidity there is in this market, those practices are eking their way back in. And I've been shouting about it for many, many years and I shout about it on every podcast I do and every press release I do and you know, it annoys me when I see people who advertise these very low rates and they do silly terms which we know can't be people can't repay you in and why do they do it so that they can charge default interest rates and so they can charge big extension fees and I hate it it's a bugbear of mine Um, I don't like it when people don't treat customers fairly Uh, and because it just brings us back where we've taken all these strides to move this industry forward we need to make sure that we don't allow ourselves to return. I think it's a really important point that, you know, it's come and it comes from 
also how the business comes into you guys, be it the broker market or client direct uh, for some other lenders. You're predominantly broker. 99% uh, of our business comes from intermediaries. So the relationship between the lender and the broker is really important about how they're, how they're then promoting this to their clients. Well, because trust. Yeah, it's trust. Uh, exactly. It's not always price. And it's, well, it's we've never, we've never sold on price. You know, and when we started Octane, uh, we started with no products. And people thought we were mad. You know, when we, when we, when we launched the Octane business, we, 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 I remember coming into the Arkenco and you had all the guys around the table in this room. And I remember, and they were all going, what, what, what do the products look like? What loan to value are you going to? And what, and what is your pricing? And, you know, what's the proc fee? And I said to them, I said, well, we put you in control. And actually, we're going to price based on risk. And for us, risk is the borrower, the asset, and how we're going to be repaid. And by the way, we'll put you in control because if your client needs a lower rate and you're happy to share more of the fee, then we can put you in control. And you could see some of the guys' lights went on straight away thinking, well, this is a great idea. And others looked at me as if I literally had lost my marbles. Well, because they like a product guy. Correct, correct. And it took us a little while. It took us a little while to get that message through. But actually, people got it. And when they got it and realized how powerful it was, they really used it to their advantage. Because the one thing we had, more than anything else, was experience and certainty of delivery. So by the time we left Octopus, um, Matt, John, myself, we had lent more than 2.3 billion across almost three and a half thousand loans. Um, we didn't let anybody down when Brexit happened. We didn't let anybody down through those seven odd years that we were there. Uh, and that experience and certainty of delivery and certainty of funding goes a long way. We had to take one step forward. We had to then prove that and demonstrate that to our current partner and funder, which we did very quickly as well. Um, but you can't, you, you, you I was going to say you can't put a price on certainty. You can, and it is often slightly higher than your lowest possible rate that you can get in the marketplace because people want certainty more than necessary, more than sometimes just the lowest possible rate. But let's focus on that certainty for a bit because it's one thing we also look at here is uh, have they got the funds, how certain are they to deliver with it? So your funding lines compared to other funding lines in the market, be it uh, full discretion or like warehouse lines with people selling down books or people selling on loans individually. How, you know, how does that categorically work? Are you in complete control of your funds uh, uh, and can yeah. you give that certainty? Yeah, well, we've got multiple uh, lines of funding coming into us, um, including bank funding as well as our, our JV partner has substantial uh, deep pockets, and we're looking to grow. Uh, but funding lines do breed funding lines, and experience makes it a lot easier to get a funding line than when you're just starting out. Um, I think track record will, with in terms of what we've delivered before and what we've delivered now, you know, we get people knocking on our door all the time. We're not looking. We don't really want any more funds because we've got such a wonderful partner who gives us whatever we need and we do have the discretion you know there hasn't been a loan that we've wanted to do that we haven't been able to do and that is all you really want as a lender and you know if you look at um, what makes a great lender it is being able to deliver when times are good and when times are bad you know you throw in coronavirus and the world being, being thrown on its head I think we were one of the only lenders who carried on. We didn't furlough anybody. We, you know, at, immediately when everybody was sent home, you know, we had a, a meeting with our funders and our funders were like, treat borrowers correctly. Treat borrowers the way you want to be treated yourselves. And that was our mantra. And treat brokers and borrowers the way you'd want to be treated yourself. And we will come out of the shining. And thank goodness we did. 
Yeah, no, completely right attitude on it. And is there a... If it, on funding lines, just a final point there, do you think there is a, what you know, the funding, the ideal funding line you need as a lender, right, to want to get started and progress to get going? Because there's so many funding lines out there, as you said, different ones from it. What would it be? It's a, that's an amazing question. Uh, it's yeah, out you, there. You, 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 want, you, you do want discretion. Um, you want to be able to be in control of your own destiny. You want people to, it depends, from my point of view, I think the highest leverage you can get at the lowest possible price. So very similar to what a borrower wants. Yeah. Uh, so you know. my clients Exactly. <laughs> um, but no, I, I think it's it's more about the partner um, and the relationship between the funder and yourself. Because if you've got that relationship, like we are very, very close to our funder. And we built that when we were in our previous company and we have really built that in a big way here. It's... It, you can't put a price actually on having that level of certainty and that strong relationship where you can discuss things and, and debate deals and actually get the things you want. Um, but you know, having a flexible funding line that allows you to do the loans you want to do. There's no point having a funding line that only wants the vanilla loans if, you, if your business is geared around non-vanilla loans or having a funding line that just does residential when you've got a big focus on semi-commercial. So you have to understand what you can and can't do, what the limits and restrictions are per funding line. It's a complicated business, you know, because you have to look at property type, borrower exposure, um, uh, location exposure, all these different things, loan-to-value exposure, loan-to-value averages, all these little things um, dotted together create a great funding line. I think that comes down to consistency of message for your business and team. Because if you're not from the top all the way through um, relaying that information, what you can do, clarity of um, you know uh, information we need or assets we can, can lend on, the wrong type of business is going to come in or people is gonna, uh, are going to say the, the wrong thing. Yeah. So if you don't have a clear message... And sometimes if you've got a productless lender, it's hard to have that message. Correct. But, and when you, the biggest word you used there was team. And, uh, you know, there's a reason why our business has been successful. It's not because me, John, and Matt are so great. It's because we've got the most amazing team behind us and we've got the most amazing team alongside us. And, you know, we are, although, you know, when you look at the business and you, you look at the fact that Octane, when people think of Octane, they don't just think me, John and Matt. They think Liam, they think Justin, they think Fran, they think Srina, they think Jamie, Graham. They think of a, a lot of the team who've helped us grow, Gemma. Uh, it, it's just been an amazing business with built and grown with amazing people. And a lot of our team are shareholders. Uh, you know, we make we think it's important that they share in our success with us. It's not just, you know, all about the three of us. Uh, it's an important point because um, teams are everything, as you said, and you have a good reputation in the market for having a constant team. So you've talk, talked on key traits of, you know, maybe shareholders with uh, making people shareholders be part of it. Um, but what do you, outside of product criteria, whatever, when you're running a business, yeah. what do you think it is? Respect uh, teams. Respect. The fact that our sales team respect credit, credit respect sales. Uh, I, I personally, when you think about, if you look at our business, right, you've got Jonathan and then you've got Matt and myself. So Jonathan is more strategic. He's our chief exec. He is the brain's trust, so to speak. He will pull the pieces and, and, and make us move in certain directions. He's really, really a fantastic, bright guy who just knows exactly what he's doing, knows exactly where we want to go and knows how to push the pieces accordingly. From a day-to-day -day operational point of view, you have Matt who looks after all of credit and risk and operations and myself who looks after the sales and marketing side. But the one thing we have, which most lenders don't have, 
is a mutual respect for each other and for everything that each other's teams do. So when you have a salesperson who really respects everybody in credit and a credit person who really respects the challenges of generating that business, it's such a nice environment as opposed to credit say no. Oh, I'd like to do the deal, but they say no. Uh, I never ever want to hear that coming out of our as, business. As against them. It, well, there's no <laughs> as against them. Yeah, exactly. that's, the, that's the beauty, but there never has been. And that level of um, respect permeates through the entire business. It starts from us with each other, but also us respecting our teams. And, you know, Matt and myself and all the, the leaders of the business, Donna, Gemma, Graham, Ollie, Liam, we all, we work, we're working for our team as opposed to our team working for us. Absolutely perfect. Very well said. Um, and moving kind of forward, how do you see the kind of broker market changing? You know, there's a couple of points I got down here, technology, reputation, professionalism. I think they've all come in to the conversation in the last kind of half an hour. But if you're 99% broker-led from what comes in there, the, the uh, evolution of the broker market is really important to where you're positioning your, uh, your business. So how do you see that broker market changing? Um, I think from a technology point of view, uh, it'll get ever more streamlined and frictionless. Uh, it has to. I think with specialist lending, though, I don't think it'll ever become fully automated. Not, not, maybe not, not in my lifetime anyway. Um, I do believe that it, uh, it has already evolved massively. I mean, if you look at our business, our, we've gone fully paperless since COVID happened. Before COVID, we were always, we had paper files, we had paper this, paper that. We haven't had a paper file since March last year. Um, and everything is electronic. More importantly, we did away with wet signatures for our applications. We introduced an app for our borrowers to apply. That process takes four minutes. It allows them, it, it gives us authority to do um, uh, searches, credit searches on them. It does their KYC, so it allows them to submit their KYC to us. And it does electronic ID verification. That whole process takes four minutes um, from start to finish. The application form was reduced from eight pages down to two, which the broker sends in alongside that. And our ratio of AIP to app, which was at, let's say, 35% before, is now at almost 50% on the back of that. And the time taken has gone from when an app comes in on the back of an AIP from, I think it was two weeks to three days. It doesn't, it still exists in some places and I'm completely bemused by it, but some people, some lenders still want a certified copy of ID. Yeah. You know, with it, and, and that, you know, especially with what we've just been through, getting stamped, seeing passports, whatever, it's, it's craziness. And especially with the tech, it's out there now. So I think majority of the time you're going to get it anyway because they have to take that to their solicitor. So, but to start the process off, to do all the searches, to do a verification checks, we've got the process covered now. We've got great tech and, this, and technology will continue to evolve. The brokers need to ad adapt and adopt some of that technology as well. Um, and it is happening, you, know, you get more and more, but uh, if I was becoming a broker today, tech would be at the heart of what I did, but so would professionalism and so would regulation to make sure that you are treating your customers fairly, that you've got everything covered. But again, if you couple that with automation um, and, and professionalism, you're setting yourself up for, for success. Yeah, automation and you know technology is there to speed things up. It's not there for the advice. And you know, as exactly you said, the specialist finance market, I think, is you can't have someone um, um, designing a product, designing uh, a deal through tech. That has to be done through uh, through human interaction. Uh, you, you can use tech to help you design a product because you've got all the information around what performs well, what doesn't. So 
But in terms of giving advice, can't beat sitting across the table and saying, I've looked at the market for you. I've used a bit of tech. Maybe I've done a bit of sourcing so you can see what it is there. But sourcing is not going to tell you who's going to guarantee that loan, who's, who's got that certainty of delivery. That's experience. And experience will tell you that this lender over here who might be charging 0.55 a month, but this lender over here is charging 0.57 a month, the 0.57 has never let you down, whereas the 0.55 have left you at the altar three times. You know, that's, that's it's a very, very you valid... You're over 25 pounds. Exactly, but, but you joke, you joke. We've had people come back to us saying, you know, we, we're desperate to use you, but the client has had an offer from somebody else at 0.02% per month cheaper. And... You know, is there anything you can do? And listen, we, we, we often try and see what we can do, but we're like, you've got to sell based on certainty rather than just price. Because as soon as you build your entire business based on price, you've got nothing when somebody comes and undercuts you. So we've never built it on price. We've always built it on certainty. Thank goodness, a billion pounds later, after four years, it seems to be working. Oh, yeah, I saw it in the media. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Big, yeah, big, it, big milestone. It, so, it, well it, it really was, and it's something we're all unbelievably proud of. Um, but we're not thinking, okay, we've hit a billion, that's it, let's go to the beach now. How now quickly it's about, can you do the next? It's exactly right. That is exactly, you, you joke. It's not a joke. Uh, we did the first you know, billion in four years. I'd love to halve that and do the next billion in two. Um, but again, as long as it's the right loans to the right borrowers for the right brokers on the right assets where we're going to get our money back. Let's talk about that. Adam. So how, how are you going to achieve that? But it's, it must be linked to product development. How easy is it to change, um, you know, product development uh, where you can go into different sectors? You might have to consider, one, what the products are and the speed you can get it to market. But then have you got the capability internally, both on funding underwriting yep. and BDM. So yeah, it's well, not as easy just to create a product. It wasn't easy. And we've we've morphed, as you know, um, from what we used to be known as a bridging lender who did a little bit of buy-to-let. We're now known as a specialist lender who does bridging and buy-to-let and does both equally as well. The beauty that was we launched our new buy-to-let product range in the height of COVID. April, May last year, we launched a completely unique buy-to-let product range of five products. Uh, No stress testing required, lending to people where the banks and specialist lenders struggle. So we lend to first-time landlords, foreign nationals, first-time buyers, people are buying multi-unit freehold blocks, HMOs, holiday lets, flats above commercial, things where brokers were struggling to place and where the banks come COVID time, we're like, no, no, I don't want these borrowers right now. I just want vanilla, please. I want your your very easy to process, easy. Or just don't lend at all. Yeah, or just don't lend at all. No, listen, we (laughs) I've got to tell you, the more they do that, the better it is for us. But um, we launched and we morphed and into the space last year, and it's been a phenomenal success. We had to change processes, obviously. We had to change the way our application process worked. We had to change the way that we sold it because we were going from selling no products to having a product range and no products. But it comes back to what I said at the beginning. Team is everything. And if you've got the right people who are bright, who care, it's easy. It's easy, but you have to have that. You, you can't teach somebody to care. You can't teach somebody to wake up in the morning and think, I want to deliver the best possible service to my brokers and to my clients, and I'm desperate to hit my numbers, and I'm desperate to p- pay this loan out for the clients. Our mantra, whether it's a bridging loan, a buy-to-let loan, a developer exit or a refurbishment loan, is how do we get this through? How do we, how we, how do we find a way to pay this loan out? everybody's going to find obstacles with loans. And lawyers, that's what they're paid to do. They're paid to find problems. Uh, So thank God we've got 
people in our office who are paid to find solutions. Um, <laughs> starting with Matt, who's our head of risk, and cascading down through all the, the credit team. That's what we do. Um, and be it a buy-to-let uh, or a bridge, we, we, we're going to continue down that route. You know, we, do, we only do four things at, at Octane right now. Bridging, buy-to-let, refurb, and developer exit. That's it. Um, there's so many other things we can go into, but for now, we're just focusing on growing where we where we are. And how long did it take you to launch that buy-to-let product? You know, you um, said uh, so. We were going to launch it in March, um, and then the world decided to go into meltdown. Um, when did you launch it? April. Uh, we launched it end of April. <laughs> yeah. End of April. But it's funny. We we did delay it a little bit. Um, and we did soft launches. We did we did a soft launch with with very few people just to try it out because we wanted to make sure that what we were doing worked. And the first launch, we're like, okay, well, we're doing some things wrong here. Then we did a second, we widened it a little bit more. Still realized we we're doing a couple of things wrong because you can only do that when deals come through. Yeah, you got to get the process uh, right. Correct, which correct. Which is why you did a soft launch. Correct. Yeah. And then I think I think we launched it full on. I think end of May uh, it was. And if I tell you. The, the number of applications and deals coming through the door, it is phenomenal. Um, but again, the processes are right. Yes, we increased the team slightly, um, but we haven't had to go and hire 100 people because the processes are right. We're, we've adapted our bridging processes, which are geared around speed anyway, to buy-to-let. And the buy-to-let brokers who'd never used us before who are like, oh my God, I can't believe you can do this in a couple of days. Yeah, breath of fresh air. Yeah, but a lot of them are like, I'm going to need to bridge this first and then can you maybe do your buy-to-let in six weeks? And we're like, why do you want to bridge it for six weeks and charge the customer twice? If we can do it straight onto a buy-to-let and help you and save them fees and save them the hassle, and they're like, oh, I thought you had to bridge it first. Of course not. Well, I guess a buy-to-let product range also because, you know, the term is going to be, what, an average, like a three-year term? Well, it's a five-year term, but we only lock them in for three years. Yeah, that's what I mean. So if you look at that, look at your loan book. So one, you can grow number of loans completed on, but you've then grown longevity into the business. So you're not just going to have... One billion or whatever out there, you're going to have. It's going to be out for longer. Which well, with is bridging, key. correct. With yeah. bridging, you are sprinting to stand still, and we love bridging. And bridging is in our DNA, uh, and we will continue to do bridging till uh, till till the day I, I stop, which hopefully isn't a long time still. Um, <laughs> well, but you don't have to. You don't have to think on January the first how many loans can I write each no, year? No, <laughs> no. I mean, you do still. You do yeah. still. But at the same time, it's nice to have a a. And a book which has got different granularity. So you've got nice small loans, big loans, bridging loans, buy-to-let loans, developer exit loans, refurbishment loans. And you've got a lovely spread. Um, but yes, we, we are fortunate that, again, coming back to funding, our partner also loves them. And we are you know, aiming to just continue to grow and, and really make a big name for ourselves in this space. And going forward, then, what do you feel about the kind of next generation of people, both on the lender side, broker side? You know, what is the key points you'd say about why would you want to come and work with someone like Octane versus a bank? What, you know, what are the key things about uh, next generation of brokers? Yeah. You know, uh, you know, I think for the next generation of brokers who are starting out, the first bit of advice I would give to them is do not ignore the specialist lending market. Don't just think I'm going to do mortgages and that's what I'm going to do because you will quick, very quickly, mortgages are one of the things that you can automate um, a lot of the time, just vanilla mortgages, bread and butter. You've got all these robo advisors and all the stuff. I still don't really agree with it all, but a lot of people are going down that route. Yeah. And more and more people are going to be pushed down the specialist route. Well, it's a race to the bottom of pricing as well with mortgages. Absolutely. So for mortgage brokers, I would recommend that 
you widen what you do, you include specialists and short-term finance in your toolkit, uh, it'll make you a more rounded broker. Uh, it'll enable you to provide more holistic service um, and also will stand you apart from the competition. Uh, and, and we all know specialist finance is only going to grow. From a lender point of view, I would tell anybody who's coming in, try and be different. You know, we're, we're, there's no point trying to be the same as everybody else. Try and be your own lender and try and find your own niche uh, as long as you don't copy us. <laughs> it's not, it's people usually copy it and change one little bit, but it's well, not we, that we, easy because you don't have the vision. Correct, but we've seen yeah. people already try. We've seen yeah. two or three already come into the market since we've done it and, and you know, we're going we're gonna to look at every deal uniquely. Okay. No, but we've seen it all before. We saw it when we were at Dragonfly. People came in, copied our product range, and just dropped the pricing and increased the leverage. You're always going to have people who are going to come in. But as I said, if you build a business where it's purely about price, it's going to be a short-lived The market's always cyclical. So you're going to have people like Correct. Jonathan, which you related to earlier on. Jonathan has the vision to know when things are going to change. And I think the most important point is how you adapt how you can change and not adapt when you're halfway through that cycle, adapt before that cycle when it's happened, like the buy-to-let product you said. And that's a, that is a key for longevity in business. Yeah, but I think when you're looking for a lender and when you're looking at what's going to happen, you must be looking as a broker or a lender or a client, for that matter, at financial security and financial stability because the economy is in for a rough couple of years. It's in for a rough ride, I've got to tell you. You know, the furlough scheme's going to end. The world's going to go back to normal-ish. Um, as a broker and as a client, you want to make sure that the lender you're working with and that you're recommending your clients to are going to be around for the long haul and are going to be there when the proverbial hits the fan and they're not going to try and shaft them and they're not going to try and just say, okay, well, you know, give me my money back. I want my money back now. It's somebody who's going to work with you, who's going to work with your, with your, with your clients. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, Mark, I've really, really appreciated discussing uh, everything with you. You're so passionate, which is really obvious, you know, just sat across the table from you and see how passionate you are about your, what you do. I also want to say thank you to you and, and your team. You really added value to the whole market, you know, for us as a brokerage. Uh, you're a lender which we, we trust, we go to, we real value what you bring into the market. Uh, and you've made massive change to the market. So congratulations, and I look forward to working with you and Octane in the future. Thank you very much. And, and you know, the same comes from us to you. I mean, it's, uh, it's refreshing to deal with a partner, and that's what we do to find you as who actually cares. So thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks. Thank you.